Hello and welcome to another episode of the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. I am Ben Williams, your host, publisher and editor-in-chief of the Rocky Mountain Mason magazine. Today I'm looking forward to reading for you The Turk, the marvelous chess-playing robot of brother Wolfgang von Kempelen. This was published back in 2013, um, and it is a, a fascinating story about an often overlooked and forgotten brother of our craft who really did inspire the world with a ruse. So, the Turk, the marvelous chess-playing robot of brother Wolfgang von Kempelen. Brother Johann Wolfgang Ritter von Kempelen de Pasmand, 1734-1804, is a man often unnoticed and overlooked in modern times. Yet it's hard to overestimate his impact on the world. The space created by his absence would stretch a vacuum into modern times and, quite possibly, render the world as we know it unrecognizable. A rare genius of the Enlightenment, Kempelen inspired no less in diverse greats as James Watt and his steam engine, Edgar Allan Poe, who wrote a story about the chess-playing automaton, Edmund Cartwright, the inventor of the power loom that automated weaving, Alexander Graham Bell, inventor of the telephone, and Charles Babbage, the inventor of the world's first computer. For half a century, Kempelen was a prominent figure in the Enlightenment, the talk of European courts appearing in unexpected places and mystifying the world with his scientific and magical diversions. Among his diverse and eclectic accomplishments, so varied and wide-raging, are he was patronized by Frederick the Great, the great protector of the Scottish Rite. He was appointed a Knight of the Holy Roman Empire. He was admitted into the Imperial Academy of Arts. He assisted in moving an entire university. He invented a particular type of steam engine. He was placed in charge of Hungary's salt mines and their manifold engineering operations. He became counselor of the Royal Chancellery of Hungary. He wrote plays. He consulted on a channel to connect the Danube with the Adriatic Sea. He could move water uphill. He built a typewriter for the blind composer, singer, and pianist Marie-Therese Paradis. And he invented a machine capable of emulating human speech. It actually answered questions in different languages. But despite all this, as well as several lasting innovations in mechanics and engineering that contributed to the onset of the Industrial Revolution, Kempelen is best known for a magical illusion, an ingenious chess-playing robot known as the Turk. The secret of its operation eluded the world for over a hundred years. In fact, aside from the surety modern science affords us to the contrary, no one can be quite certain it didn't work, as many supposed in that time when science and magic were so closely allied via the agency of spirits. The reality is just as intriguing. Brother Kempelen was born in 1734 and studied philosophy and law at Vienna. In 1755, he was introduced at the Viennese court by his father and took the task of translating the Hungarian civil code from Latin into German. This he accomplished in just a few days. The Empress of, Austria of the Austria-Hungarian Empire, Maria Theresa, was impressed by this feat. The translation was heralded as a masterpiece across the land. The Hungarian court will benefit greatly from young Mr. Kempelen, she said, and appointed him counsellor to the imperial court. During this time of scientific awakening across Europe, the best and the brightest minds were delighting the royal courts with displays of their 
automatons, mechanical devices created to resemble natural phenomena. These would play a lasting role in ushering in the Industrial Revolution. Chief among these minds was a man called Valkason, who had already made a mechanical duck that could eat and digest food. It could flap its metallic wings and moved in striking similarity to its natural counterpart. In the process of making this remarkable device, Valkason invented a new way of vulcanizing rubber. Valkason also unveiled a mechanical flute-playing boy who could play recitals of popular tunes when coded drums were fitted into a revolving clockwork machine. The mechanical boy played the flute with his fingers and blew air through his mouth. The effect was remarkable. Bold Valkason, rival of Prometheus, wrote Brother Voltaire. An Englishman, James Cox, became famous for his large, jewel-encrusted automata, which were sent as gifts to China by the East India Company. He made an eight-foot mechanical elephant covered in rubies, emeralds, diamonds, and other precious stones, a mechanical peacock, a mechanical tiger, and a mechanical swan. One Henri-Louis Jacques Droz, a Swiss clockmaker, made a mechanical harpsichord player, a mechanical draftsman, and a mechanical writer, each operable by means of irregularly shaped disks programmed with bumps and valleys, the rotation of which coordinated among a set of spring-loaded levers to actuate the mechanical movements and appendages by which these robots affected their actions, to play music, draw pictures, and write letters, respectively. A truly remarkable time, one where the digitization of music, words, and motions were realized in the pits and valleys, the bumps and knobs of clockwork gears and steam-powered engines but a time also full of deception and affect. Some automatons were not actually genuine. One flute-playing boy, for example, was discovered to conceal a real flute-playing boy inside. But this was part of the fun. Each court bearing witness to an invention would try to discover the secret of its operation to the elevation or denigration of the inventor, and the real automatons became sensations, enough to provide an inventor with a lifetime of fame and good income. Legends and reality blurred, popularized by stories of the Renaissance, of Leonardo da Vinci's mechanical lion, the mechanical flying eagle of Reggio Montanus, and the magical devices of the alchemists of the Arabian East. So it was that, one evening in 1769, von Kempelen was invited by his patroness, Maria Theresa, Empress of Austria-Hungary, to observe the scientific conjuring of one Pelletier, a French naturalist, who was to demonstrate the newly popularized sensation of magnetism, other natural phenomenon, as well as display his collection of automata, all couched in the supremacy of French science, no doubt. Maria Theresa invited Kempelin to observe and discuss the mode of operation of these automatons, to explain away any supernatural effect or spot a deception. Throughout the performance, Kempelin instructed the Empress on the probable mechanics driving the machines, explained away the mystery of magnetism, and, we must suppose, brought the whole affair and sweeping rhetoric of the Frenchman down to earth. At the end of the show, the Empress rose, and addressing the room, asked Brother Kempelin what he thought of the Frenchman and his devices. The room fell silent when von Kempelin said, for all to hear, that he was not impressed with this Frenchman, and that he, Kempelin, could deliver to the light of the court there assembled a better automaton than any displayed that evening and, in fact, quite possibly the greatest automaton ever seen. 
This delighted Maria Theresa, who gave him six months to live up to it. Sequestered away amongst the sounds of saws, we might imagine, iron on iron, the scratch of the quill and the rustle of parchment, von Kempelin worked in secret. True to his word, six months later, he arrived at the royal court with the most famous automaton ever constructed. It would capture the attention of the world. So it was that, on an evening in 1770, von Kempelin rolled his chess player into the imperial court. The chess player was a wooden figure of a man, wearing a turban, seated, seated behind a cabinet, on top of which was positioned a chessboard. In one hand he held a long, elegant pipe. We might imagine the room quieting, as Kempelin introduced, to the attention of the, that assemblage of European nobles, his chess-playing marvel, the Turk. Kempelin passed in front of the machine, opening the first of three doors to reveal an intricate web of cogs and machinery, a spidery mass of brass and steel, somehow ordered in some myriad of complexity. He would walk, slowly we must imagine, behind the machine, open a rear door and pass a candle thereabouts to mark a clear line of sight through the machinery. Nothing concealed. He would wind it up just a touch with a large key and the machine would whir, all those cogs and wheels turning in synchronized wonderment. He would open the second and third doors to demonstrate a predominantly empty cavity, having a few chains and rings suspended mysteriously therein, and open the rear doors to mark a clear line of sight through the machine where the Turk was seated. Then he would close it all up, wind the machine at an aperture at the side with a large key he kept about him for the purpose. You could hear the sound of the clockwork putt-putt-putting away, the mechanical pulse ready to animate the inanimate and breathe life into the unliving. There was among the nobles there, in witness that night, the Count of Cobenzel. He was known as a chess player, and considered quite good at the game. Von Kempelin bid him sit opposite the Turk, and nodding, gestured that he should begin. The Count, with a bemused smile perhaps, ponderously picked up a pawn and made an opening move. He probably seemed satisfied, and smiled at the crowd behind him. But then, gasps all round, the Turk lifted up an arm, moved in synchronized fluidity, to grasp a black pawn and countered. The game continued, a tense silence punctuated only by the sounds of wonder as the Turk began to dominate the game. Von Kempelen would periodically wind up the machine with his large key, at random intervals obeying no particular expanse of time, and puzzled the room by mysteriously checking a small elongate box which he had removed from a drawer in the Turk's cabinet previous to the onset of the game, as if secretly checking some disembodied function of the device. The Count lost. The room exploded with applause. The legend was born. The wheels and springs make planned moves, but under the control of an unknown directing force, wrote one commentator. Notwithstanding the minute attention which I have repeatedly observed it, I have not been able in the least degree to form any hypothesis which could satisfy myself. Here, they said, was a machine that could think. The illusion continued when the Count was asked to place a knight on any square on the board, any square at all. This done, the room looked on as the Turk performed the fabled knight's tour, placing the knight through increments of its L-shaped move onto each and every square on the board but once. This was a popular problem of the era, had several solutions, but the Turk's solution, which could perform the tour from any particular square the knight was placed on, was apparently a novel one. The room was astounded. 
The box was too small to conceal a person. And besides, Kempelin had allowed thorough scrutiny of the box by his audience. Rumors began to spread. It was operated by the agency of spirits. It concealed a chess-playing monkey like the one trained by the Sultan of Baghdad. There was a famous chess-player soldier concealed inside who had lost his legs in battle, and he somehow controlled the Turk. It was operated by Kempelin himself, by magnetism, by means of the small, elongate box. But no one could provide a convincing explanation, and Kempelin's legend grew. Letters appeared in scientific journals across Europe. It wasn't long until the whole continent erupted in discussions and awe of Brother von Kempelin and his chess-playing Turk. Many hypotheses were concocted, but none explained away the mystery. So it was that Kempelin was ordered to take his invention around Europe to showcase the perspicuity of Austria-Hungarian science to the world. He played in Paris, then the best-known seat of chess masters in the world. He played in London. He played across Italy and at all the prized courts of the land. And he played well. Kempelin increased his aura of mystery by allowing spectators to place large magnets upon the cabinet to assuage the growing suspicion that magnetism somehow controlled the device, operated mysteriously by Kempelin himself by means of the elongate box which Kempelin carried with him, never letting anyone look inside. Of course, it was a ruse. Ingeniously rendered, there was a man concealed inside. But how was he able to fit in there? How could he see the board? And how could he translate the movements to the Turk, who fluidly grasped pieces by opening his hand and placing the pieces with exactness in calculated strategies? Whoever he was, he was a near-genius chess player to boot. The Turk did lose a few games. In that day, chess was a fad. One of the best players, the Frenchman Philidor, was documented in London playing three games simultaneously, blindfolded. He won two and drew the third. Philidor would play the Turk in a highly publicized match, which the Turk lost. But Kempelin's fame was assured. Even without victory, the Turk delighted all present. On May 28th, in 1783, Brother Kempelin wrote to Benjamin Franklin who was in Paris, subsequent the signing of the Treaty of Paris that ended the American Revolution. Brother Benjamin was, the world recognized, a chess enthusiast. Brother Benjamin came to the, to the Hotel d'Aliglaire, where Kempelin was set up for part of his tour around Europe and played the Turk. Brother Benjamin is said to have lost the game, and anecdotal evidence supplied by Brother Benjamin's grandson supports that assertion, but he was well pleased. Over time, it became harder for Kempelin to keep the game afoot. Perhaps the man concealed inside, we still don't know who he was, was no longer tolerant of the discomfort required to play the Turk, or perhaps he wanted more money. But after this tour, Kempelin complained to his requesters that the Turk was broken and that he didn't want to repair it. At all turns, he tried to downplay the Turk and focus people's attention on his other, more significant, he believed, and more practical inventions. But he couldn't escape the shadow of the Turk. It would haunt him the rest of his days. He declined offers to purchase the Turk. Perhaps he didn't want to explain its function. He was ordered periodically to resuscitate it for various nobles who commanded that kind of authority, and a couple of times he resurrected it, perhaps with a new player inside. In time, consensus built that, indeed, there was a man inside, but no one could replicate its operation, and credulity remained. Kempelin died on March 26 in 1804, and the Turk was packaged up, the mystery of its operation still unsolved. Non omnis moriar, Kempelin's epitaph read. 
I do not die completely. And sure enough, his legend would live on. By 1109, another showman, polymath and mechanical genius, known as Mayalzel, had already acquired the Turk from Kempelin's son. He resurrected it, rebuilt it from the pieces to discover its secret mode of operation and would bring it to its most famous game yet against Napoleon Bonaparte, the emperor himself. Mayalzel was a marvelous genius, capable of great feats of invention. He had made an automaton called the Panharmonica, six feet wide, six feet deep, and five feet tall, that replicated an entire orchestra using coded drums to control the multitude of instruments required. It was heralded as one of the greatest musical automatons ever devised, rivaling the, the musician of uh, Valkasan from years prior. He befriended Beethoven, who wrote a piece to be played by the Panharmonicon, but that's another story for another time. Napoleon versus the Turk. Napoleon arrived at Schönbrunn in 1809, the same year Mayalzel, then acting as engineer for the royal court there, had successfully completed the rebuild of the Turk. Mayalzel brought the Turk to one of Napoleon's general's houses, and Napoleon arrived to play. There are a number of accounts of this game, some more fantastical than others. The most likely account derives from the memoirs of Napoleon's valet, who records Napoleon cheating after three moves. The Turk shook its mechanical head and replaced the piece. Napoleon then cheated a second time, and the Turk, shaking its mechanical head, confiscated the piece. Napoleon apparently said, that's right, and then cheated a third time. The Turk then swept the pieces off the board, and the game ended to applause. Another account then records Napoleon requesting a second game, with assurances to comply by the rules. The second game was printed in the Illustrated London News in 1844, and records Napoleon's loss to the Turk. The game lasted 19 moves, and has been alleged to be spurious for a number of reasons, not least of which was the Turk's capture of Napoleon's queen instead of mating Napoleon on the 15th move. But that alone doesn't necessarily mean the game never happened. If the game was real, then Napoleon was not a very strong player. The author of this article rather likes that possibility. The word Russia Bonaparte, Russia, springs to mind, and therefore chooses to believe in the veracity of the reported game. That Napoleon cheated in the first game is also, perhaps, worthy of note. Either way, Napoleon lost. Interestingly, Napoleon's stepson, Eugene de Beauharnais, did purchase the Turk from Mialzel for 30,000 francs, three times what Mialzel had paid for it, in order to procure the secret of his operation for himself. Perhaps disappointed on finding it out, which would make sense, considering it was all an illusion which depended on the witting collaboration of an anonymous chess player, the Turk went into a period of dormancy, forgotten in Eugene's palace at Milan. Until Mialzel reappeared with a new chess player to conceal inside the machine, perhaps, and gained rights to use the Turk in displays, once again in London, possibly with some profit-sharing agreement with Eugene. It was in London that the Turk was seen by young Charles Babbage, who, inspired by the idea of a machine that could think, spent the rest of his life realizing the first computer, his difference engine, a machine driven by logic to arrive at determinable outcomes from a variable set of data, all inspired by the deception of the Turk. Charles Cartwright, a minister from Leicester in northern England, would be inspired enough by the Turk to start work on an automated loom. 
which may be which many had thought impossible, and years later he would obtain a patent for it. It's important to note that even though it was an illusion and not an automaton per se, the Turk still combined an amount of ingenuity in its operation. Kempelen had designed the Turk to effectively conceal a full-grown man inside without the most thorough examination revealing his position. He had devised a means of communicating the movements of the pieces to that concealed man, and a contraption by which the man could communicate moves through the Turk proper, and he maintained the showmanship required to conceal its true operation, a feat rivaled by the most seasoned stage magicians of the modern day. Even by modern standards, it was an illusion of force. It was, in actual fact, probably the first so-called cabinet illusion devised by man, a model after which many famous magical illusions would be crafted. The Turk's presence was sequestered to legend for a century, left to the descriptions recorded in history. But in 1889, a famous American illusion builder succeeded in constructing a replica of the machine. John Gauguin is a master illusion builder who has spent his life designing and crafting illusions for the best-known magicians of the 20th century. He even consulted on the mechanical orange tree, an actual illusion built by Robert Houdin, perhaps the greatest stage magician of all time, featured in the movie The Illusionist. John Gauguin brought much expertise to the task and much research. He built a cabinet and then positioned a man inside in the various postures necessary to conceal himself during the examination of the cabinet and the presentation of the interior to the audience. He figured out how to use magnetism to communicate the movements to the undersurface of the board so the man could witness the game. Small metal discs suspended under the board that could wobble for up to 30 seconds to indicate a move had been made and where the piece had been placed. He made the Turk's eyes roll, shake its head, and rap on the table the same way Kempelin had done to signify check or provide an element of comedy in the midst of a game. And he reconstructed the pantograph by which the movements of the man could be communicated to the Turk's arm, and pieces picked up and moved to the corresponding position on the board atop the cabinet. In November 1989, the Turk reappeared at the History of Magic conference in Los Angeles and again delighted the world by winning a number of games. It has since travelled the world again, and been featured on television, and reclaimed its position as an inspiring work of the ingenuity of man, communicating legend and mystery in the myth of Brother von Kempelen. You could have seen the Turk yourself on November 7th, 8th and 9th in the year 2013 at the Beverly Garland Holiday Inn in North Hollywood, Los Angeles. If you would like some further reading on this rather fascinating topic. Um, there is a great book called The Turk, The Life and Times of the Famous 18th Century Chess-Playing Machine by Tom Standage, uh, from which the above article was mainly synopsized. I would like to say that I did have the pleasure to speak with John Gauguin while I was researching this piece. And after our discussions, he had mentioned, he was rather, he's a rather old man when I spoke with him, um, but he had mentioned that he might in fact pursue the degrees of Freemasonry. And I wonder if in fact he did. If there are any listeners from California listening to this, who happen to know whether or not a fellow called John Gauguin did indeed petition the lodge, please let the Rocky Mountain Mason know. I would love to know um, whatever came of that. Anyway, thank you again for listening to the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. I hope you found that uh, that story diverting. And uh, I guess if you do like this subject material and would like to read more um, esoteric, philosophical, and like this one, historical pieces, please do subscribe to our magazine. 
www.rockymountainmason.com. Also, our parent company has other literature available for purchase, as well as small batch top quality items for wear and um, for keepsakes, if you will, um, at www.laughinglion.net. Finally, if you would like to support this podcast, please become a patron. You can click the little heart icon on the upper right-hand corner of our Buzzsprout page. That will open up our Patreon page or Patreon page. Uh, You can there subscribe for as little as $5 a month, really the cost of a cup of coffee, um, and help support the Rocky Mountain Mason bring you this material. Thank you very much again, and until next time, take care, and Godspeed.